Well, if you have been with us, you've been going our way through the book of Colossians. And we come to Colossians chapter 2 today, verse 16 and 17. Jesus is the substance we all crave. So we've been studying this book, and there is a Colossae heresy. And we're unraveling that as we go through this book. And the church is in great danger by being cheated out of the relationship with Christ because they're quit focusing on Christ and begin focusing on other things. Thinking Jesus, just believing in Jesus isn't enough. In verse 8, he said, Beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit. In verse 16 of chapter 2, let no one judge you. And then in verse 18, he's going to say, let no one cheat you of your reward. And so we're going to see this breaking down into three sections. One on legalism, which we're going to cover today. And then mysticism, a mystical ways of, uh, of approaching God through dreams or visions or worship of angels and these other things that are just made up. And then aestheticism, it's by denying myself of certain foods. And, uh, you know, I think a perfect picture of that is the monasteries. You know, they'd go into the monastery where nobody talks. You know, the, the, the one guy went in and and uh, after 10 years, they said, you can say two words. You guys heard this one? And uh, so after two, 10 years, the, the monk says to the, the Grand Poobah senior leader there, bed hard. <laughs> 10 years later, he says, what's your two words? Food bad. <laughs> 10 more years goes by. He said, I quit. And the Monsignor said, I'm not surprised you've done nothing but complain the last 30 years. <laughs> so it's not through a monastic life of self-denial of certain foods and, you know, certain things like that. But Paul has made it clear, it's Christ alone, he is enough. In Colossians 2.10, we looked at this, you are complete in him, who's the head of all principalities and powers. So verse 16 and 17 today, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding of festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So, or some translations say, therefore, he's referring to what he has already talked about. And he is saying that with Christ, we have the victory. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And Christ is enough. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you because, remember, we just covered this, we died with Christ. When he died on the cross, we died with him. When he was buried with Christ, we were buried with him. When he raised from the dead, we raised together with him. And so it's not of our works. It's of the work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember there in Colossians 2.12, in which you were also raised with him through faith. How were we raised with him? Through faith in the working of God. It's not about our works. It's about his work. So don't let anybody judge you, condemn you, put some kind of guilt trip on you about food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. In short, what is legalism? 
It's simply a religion of human achievement. It's focusing on yourself for that human achievement to either gain salvation or to gain a greater spirituality after salvation, all by you and your works. So this is the big difference between Christianity and all religions of the world. How do you know which religion's right? All religions of the world focus on you reaching God. And even if God originally reached out to you in some brands of Christianity, man, it is your lifelong pursuit to, to be now trying to please him and reach out to him and be holier than you are, pray more than you do, read the Bible more than you do, go to church more than you do, be kinder than you are. And, and you know what? Every time you reach a bar, the bar will go higher. And you're always under guilt. You're always living under a sense that I'm not enough, I'm not doing enough. And I, you know, if I were God, I would reject me, you know. Uh, and this, this is all religions of the world to some degree do that. But Christianity is all about faith in the work of God and the continuous works of God. It's not about putting our eyes on ourselves, saying you should be better, you can be better. It's because your lack of discipline, it's because you're not holy enough, it's because you're such a horrible person. Getting our eyes on ourselves, beating ourselves up because God's up there going, man, I wish I never chose you. Man, I, you know, I don't know who let you in the door. No, it's by faith alone. Every part of it from the beginning until we're in heaven with Christ, it's from faith to faith. Romans 1.17 says that. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just or the righteous shall be so by living by faith. Romans 4, 5, to him who, what? Does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Take a note of that. He justifies the ungodly. Isn't that what's going on every single day? He's justifying the ungodly. He, loving us, washes us and cleanses us with the water of the word that we're without spot or blemish or wrinkle. It's by counting on his faithfulness. Well, what if I'm not faithful? He remains faithful. He can't deny himself. But what if I fall? He'll pick you up. Your, God's grace is greater than your sin. Where we sin, God's grace abounds. The righteous man falls seven times, but gets up seven times. Why? Because the Lord's lifting him up every single time. And then in Hebrews um, 10.14, for by the one sacrifice he has what? Perfected for how long? Forever, those who are being sanctified. So when we believed in Christ for salvation, it wasn't 90% done by God and then 10% is by your holiness and righteousness and piety and will and discipline and desire. No, he did it 100% of that work. The moment you believed, you have everlasting life. You shall never perish. And so you wonder sometimes, 
how these strategies of these various religions, especially the ones that claim to be Christian, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and so forth, how is it that they get so much groundwork? It's because when somebody hasn't been discipled and doesn't understand what it means to have faith in Christ and continue to have faith in Christ, we, be, we go through seasons of life regularly where we feel bad about ourselves and our human nature, which of itself is sinful. And so they come in and say, you know, you say to some friend at work, you know, well, I'm, I'm having a hard time with lust or I'm having a hard time in my marriage or whatever. Well, what day do you worship on? Well, we go on Sunday. There you go. Bible clearly says it's another day. What are you eating? Oh, haven't you read the Bible? You can't eat that kind of stuff and be godly. Or, as we saw before, in early, last week, you've got to be circumcised. Or, how did you get baptized? Who baptized? Oh, yeah, our church has to baptize you. And then, boom, your marriage will take off. Then, boom, the, the lust will go away. But don't think you can conquer this human sinful nature without having this special diet or whatever it is they come up with at the time. So Paul is, is trying to say here, don't let a religious mindset or legalistic mindset be the reason why you change your behavior. Do, do we understand that? God, it grieves the Lord. If you, even if you're doing the right thing because you're trying to make yourself more holy to be more pleasing to God, it grieves him. He, he doesn't want you praying more, reading the Bible more, or whatever the, you know, eating certain foods or worshiping on a certain day out of this striving to say, now am I accepted? Now am I going to go to heaven? Now am I pleasing to you? You're his child. He, you're always pleasing to him. You're the sheep of his pasture. He's got the full responsibility. You see, the father has the full responsibility. You're his precious bride that he's engaged to. You're, you're not going to do anything that's going to change his love for you and the gift of eternal life. It was a gift. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It doesn't say the righteous shall be righteous by faith and living a good, moral, holy life. It says, by faith to faith. It starts with the works of God. It ends with the work of God. And when we get to heaven, it won't be praise me, praise me. It will be praise the Lord alone. And so as a Christians, we got to put our eyes on Christ. That's Christianity. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking into Jesus, the author and the what? Finisher of our faith. You guys know Philippians 1, 6 well. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will what? Complete it. Right up until we are face to face with Jesus in our new bodies in heaven. And we need to trust the Holy Spirit to lead us into right behavior, righteous behavior. In John 16, 13, he says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit will convict us. The Holy Spirit will gently and lovingly lead us into sanctification. 
He'll point out in a very loving, gentle way that we need to repent over that thing we said. On the freeway, the guy pulled up and tried to cut in front of you and you flipped him off and screamed at him. And, and then the pastor pulled up on the other side going, hey, how are you doing today? You know, you didn't see that, did he? You know, repent. That's, that's an outburst of wrath. That's a work of the flesh. But God's Holy Spirit will come in and say, hey, you're supposed to walk as I walk and talk as I talk. Did, did they see Jesus in you there? It's not a condemnation. It's not a, get your act together. Or I'm not going to take you to heaven. It's simply him saying, hey, I have better things for you. And so out of love, relationship, we change. Romans 2.4 says it's this loving kindness and tender mercies that lead us to repentance. In 1 Corinthians 13.3, he, he's extreme here. He says, man, if your good works are better than anyone's ever had, you, you, you give all your goods to feed the poor. You sacrifice your body in the middle of the New Guinea woods there in the, in the jungles of New Guinea and you're burned at the stake. And what does he say there? If it wasn't out of a love for God, it will profit you nothing. And actually, after that, he says, and you are nothing. Jesus said it clear. If you, you, if you want to work, I'm going to give you the work. This is it. And only it. The entire Old Testament, and I would say the New Testament as well, of what we are to do for God is in this one statement. Love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So let's, let's make a note here. That God has built the planet to reward the wise and to punish the foolish. So God sort of built in a system recognizing physical laws that govern the physical universe. But he also created spiritual laws that govern the spiritual universe. And if you're ignorant of those, it's going to spank you. It's like a toddler you know, running over on the edge of a cliff is, is, is the physical laws that govern the physical universe saying, well, since it's just a toddler, I won't let gravity work this time. Or that ignorant little child going to suffer great damage because the physical laws are unmovable, unbuilding, they're set. So in the same way, Often, people are suffering the consequences of foolish decisions, and they, they have a difficulty. And it's not God up there with the gavel going, I'll teach you to lust again. I'll teach you to get mad on the freeway. Blah, you know, God's not doing anything. <laughs> he's, he's simply saying, like the Proverbs say, you need to seek wisdom. You need to understand God. You need to have a reverence towards everything God says. That's the beginning of wisdom. You need to honor God. That's the beginning of all knowledge. Hosea went as far to say that my people are destroyed because they lack knowledge. We see this several times in the history of Israel where they'll show up and say, hey, do you know what God's word says? And the whole generation didn't even know God. Didn't even know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Didn't even know about Moses. Didn't know anything that Moses had said. 
We see that in Nehemiah when Israel had been uh, abandoned for 70 years. They were sent to Babylon and they come back and he's building the wall and, and they start reading the scriptures for the first time. These guys had never heard it and they were weeping and they couldn't get enough. They stood all day from the moment the, the sun rose till the sun set day after day. And then they came to a passage that talked about building tabernacles at a certain day and a certain week of the year. And they're like, hey, what you're reading, is, is, it's right now. Let's stop reading and let's just obey God. Simple obedience. We're going to do this for the first time. It was the first time Israel had done that since Joshua hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. They just didn't know. But does that mean like the toddler on the cliff doesn't know? Does it, does it punish them less? No. The fact is they suffered not understanding God or his word. So ignorance is no excuse. Galatians 6, 7 makes it clear. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will also reap. But again, this isn't God having to spank you. This isn't God having to punish you. This isn't God frowning on you. He's simply saying, if you plant tomato seeds, you're going to get tomatoes. Don't be surprised. <gasps> How did I get tomatoes? Remember you planting those seeds? So it works both ways. If you're planting good seed, you're going to, over the decade, maybe your whole life, be eating from that precious fruit that you had planted in your teens. But in the same way, if you're planting bad seed, it may be a giant cactus garden, <laughs> you know, for decades. You keep getting poked every time you go out in the backyard. And so, again here, it's, under, it's important to understand that legalism by definition is telling you you have to judge yourself and also to judge others. It's based on that reality that we're not complete in Christ. We need our good works. And, and so we, we therefore have to keep these good works. And every group will have their little set of good works. Okay, you got, it's about all how you eat. What day? It doesn't matter what day. It's all about this. It doesn't matter what you eat. It's on what day you worship. You know, it, it, they all have their, their groups. And as you go around, people start grabbing from every group and then they create their own group. We're the group of food and day. <laughs> and I know you're doing the weekly Sabbath, but are you doing the monthly, the new moon one? Are you doing the new moon? Are you doing the yearly one though? That's what I want to know. So again, you're, you're going to be constantly chasing your tell. So understand that in Christ as Christians, Christ didn't give us an Old Testament set of laws and then he erased the board and now he wrote a new set of New Testament laws. No, there are no laws. It's relationship. Any change that happens in us must happen through a love, appreciation of God. I want to be holy not because I'm getting condemned, not because God's mad at me, not because I'm not going to go to heaven or I'm going to doubt it. It's simply I truly want to be holy because I love shining as a light. I love being the salt of the earth. I love sensing the joy of the Holy Spirit rather than the grieving of the Holy Spirit in me. 
And I know that there's eternal rewards in just loving the Lord and living for him. Matter of fact, Paul makes this abundantly clear to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful or edify. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any of them. I'm not going to do something that's going to cause me to be addicted, and, and it, now it's going to dictate to me what I eat or drink or live. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Not, so again, can you? Yes. Should you? Well, again. What you sow is what you're going to reap. So we look at the dietary laws. Understand a couple things about them. In Leviticus 11, the dietary law was given to the Jews. Why was the dietary law given to them? Like many other laws, to keep them separate from all other peoples. Just like they were to be circumcised, to keep them separate from all other peoples. It was important that the Jewish nation remain pure until the Messiah would come. But people now read the Old Testament and say, well, I got to do this dietary law that God gave the Jews. No, you don't. Unless you're, you're a Jew trying to be righteous through Judaism. No, you don't. That was an Old Testament law. Jesus basically undid this. This is why the Pharisees, the legalists, were so mad at him. Because he said, guys, the dietary law has no value in this kingdom of God. I'm bringing to you the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. And in this kingdom, there is no dietary laws. Just think about it, he says. It's what, it is never what goes in the man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of his mouth, revealing his heart. It's not in your stomach by what you ate comes pride and greed and lust and anger. No, it's that which is in your heart. And then your mouth reveals the lust, the anger, the lust, whatever it is. So no, Jesus said, um, there's just absolutely no way that the dietary laws causes a person to be more spiritual. He says that in Mark 7. And then in Acts 10, uh, Peter, which is an interesting story, because years later in Galatia, when the Jews from Jerusalem came, he would all of a sudden be kosher. And when they led, left, he's like, bring out the bacon again. And the Galatian Christians were getting stumbled, and Paul had to rebuke him. But it's interesting, right at the beginning... There was a Gentile who was a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius in Acts 10. And God was going to tell Peter, I want you to go preach the gospel to this guy in his house. And of course, Peter, being a good Jew, he's never been in a Gentile's house. And in Peter's mind, the salvation of the Messiah is for the Jews. And Jesus puts him into this trance. He's hungry. He's up on the roof. He's hungry. But he goes into this trance like a vision and this sheet comes out of heaven with all of this prepared food that's not kosher for Jews. And the Lord says to Peter, take and eat. And he says to God, not so, Lord, I shall not do that commandment. Oh, I'm going to disobey you. And it happens again. And three times it happens. 
And then the Lord rebukes Peter and says, what I call clean is clean. Eat it. And at that moment, there was a knock at the door, some Gentile saying, my master Cornelius, an angel revealed to him that he's to come and find some guy named Simon here who will tell him a message from God. And the Lord said, Peter, go. And we see in that sermon, he was very reluctant. He's like, yeah, I'm in a Gentile's house. I don't know why I'm even here. And yeah, there was this guy named Jesus. And he's from Nazareth. He's a carpenter. I don't really know what this applies to you guys. But yeah, he died and rose again. And the Holy Spirit pours out on these guys. Horrible sermon. Very apathetic. And the Holy Spirit pours out. They all start speaking in tongues as it happened on them to them on the day of Pentecost. Paul also said point blank in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4 and 5, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So everything is up for grabs. It was uh, funny for Seven years, when I pastored Calvary San Diego, we were in a Seventh-day Adventist church. If you don't know, they're vegetarian. And, and they take that out of the Daniel, because Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach. Anyway, it, it, it's, a, it's a Christian group, but they have a lot of strange teachings. And uh, the, the pastor said, man, you guys want a really good meal for really cheap. Go to the Seventh-day Adventist hospital. And it's like, cheap, good, I'm on it. And so I, I would go down there from time to time, and I'd have breakfast, and I'm like, I didn't think these guys ate ham. I didn't think they ate uh, any meat. Look at this bacon. Look at this, uh, you know, sometimes it looked like chicken. or, And they would literally make stuff that looked just like bacon with the white stripe down it and everything. And I said to the pastor, I'm like, if it's wrong to eat meat, isn't it wrong for you to make stuff that looks like meat? <laughs> and he said, you know what? We crave the protein, and it messes with our brain, and it helps us. And I just thought, man, praise the Lord. I am not a Seventh-day Adventist guy. But it's weird how vegetarians still will make stuff that looks exactly like meat, even though they're not supposed to eat meat. Well, Paul even extends this into foods offered to idols in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8. Now, understand, in those days, people pretty much, every time they prepared meat, would, would do it to some god in worship. And so when you, Paul would go into a complete pagan city that's never heard about Christ, and you go to the swap meet, every stand has meat, but believe me, that meat had first been taken to the Zeus temple or the Diana temple or whatever. And, and Paul just says, I'm eating meat, period. Well, didn't you know that's sacrifice to Zeus? And he says there in 1 Corinthians 8, there is no Zeus. <laughs> that's made up by man. There, there is no, I don't recognize any of this as one God and he doesn't in any way, shape, or form, uh, care. He made this cow, and I'm going to eat it. Now, Paul does say, if it were to come up, though, where there's another believer, 
And Paul's getting ready to buy this Zeus burger. And the guy says, hey, before you preach the gospel, Paul, I used to be a part of this Zeus religion. And actually, my daughter, you know this, she's a prostitute in the temple still trying to be right with Zeus. Please don't support that stand. Now, I don't care if you eat the Diana stand, because I don't have anybody connected to that. But Paul said, man, if that were to stumble a believer, he goes, I will never eat meat again. But there's no law for us, he says in 1 Corinthians, very, very clearly. Now we go from food to days. And if you look at it, it's breaking the days down into festivals once a year, new moons once a month, and then Sabbaths once a week. Again, Paul made it clear in Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. You know what the best day to worship is on? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the best day. Now, it is interesting that the, the early, early church historically seemed to worship on Sunday. And from what we can understand is they wanted to worship on the day Christ raised from the dead. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, it says, when you gather together on the first day of the week. So that's it, those two verses. So I don't think it really matters what day you worship on. I remember a missionary who was wanting to minister to an island in Hungary, and it was just a major tourist attraction. And virtually the people worked from Thursday to Monday. And then their weekend was Tuesday and Wednesday. And all the churches only had worship on Sunday. But most of the people that lived there couldn't do it. That's their major day to make money. They can't have their shop shut down. People need to eat. There's a lot of people here. And so the missionary said, we're going to have church on Tuesday morning because that was the reality of most of the people or Tuesday night. And they end up reaching a lot of that community from just not being religious. Another missionary went and there was a couple of Christian churches and it just the iron curtain just fell. And they just met one night. He was actually walking through the, the city streets and he had his guitar, and the guy says, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm here to tell people about Jesus. And he goes, well, do you know this Led Zeppelin song? Sure. He's playing it. <laughs> you know this Kiss song? Sure, I know that one. And he's playing these songs, and finally the guy says, okay, I, I know English, so tell us about Jesus. He's like half drunk and all prideful, and this group of about 80 young adults came, and he preached Christ, and they all received the Lord. And he said, um, they're like, when can, we have, when can we learn more about Jesus? He's like, how about here tomorrow night? And it ended up going every single night for two years. <laughs> they took Sunday nights off. That was the one night they took off. But then there was a group of people from the other church that came. And they're like, hey, you're not a real church until you have church on Sunday morning. <laughs> and he's like, you know the thing I love about our group? They're just all in love with Jesus. And there's no religiousness here. 
So I, I am never going to have church on Sunday morning as long as I'm the pastor. Well, interesting, he eventually turned that church over, and the next guy came in and started Sunday morning services, and it pretty much dissipated the church. So again, I, I think people can get hung up on, on this religious thing. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I went to church unless I went Sunday morning, unless I did the midweek service, unless I did it this way and that way. Paul sums this all up in Romans 14 on the days and on the foods. He said, it's actually a weaker Christian that says I can only eat vegetables. But Paul said to you more mature Christians who know you can eat anything, he says, don't despise them. Don't condemn them. Don't make them feel bad that they're not eating meat. And then he says, and we just read in 14.5 of Romans, that, hey, there are people that, for whatever reason, the way their brain works, because, you know, there's some of you guys that are mathematicians and accountants, and there's others who are art, artists and free, you know. It, the personalities can vary, and there's just some people... They look at all of life through this very methodical, disciplined way. And if you try to break them from that, they'd fall apart. So Paul's like, there's certain people that got to do it on a certain day. Don't despise them for it. But those who are mature know we worship God every day. And that's, there's not one day that's more important to worship God on another day. And then he makes it clear Nobody lives to himself. Nobody dies to himself. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And together, we're going to stand before the Lord. And when you're standing before the Lord, if there's division amongst the body of Christ, make sure you had nothing to do with it. And he makes it clear, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat, not the white throne of judgment, but that of rewards. So knowing we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account all that we've said and done in our body, make sure you have no contempt for your brother if he does have a certain diet or does have a certain day he feels he needs to worship on. So when we look at festivals in a, new, in a, in a nutshell, you can see how clearly they all are completed or fulfilled in Christ. For example, the Passover. Everybody knows about the Jewish Passover. Well, that's about Jesus being sacrificed as a lamb of God. You, do you remember what they had to do after the lamb was sacrificed? They had to go to the door and they had to very specifically follow instructions by putting some blood in a bowl and then they have a hyssop branch. They're to dip it in the pole. Then they're to put it on the top of the door. Then they're to dip it in the bowl and then they're going to put it on the side and this side. You know what that looks like, guys? A cross. And he said this to Moses, everyone, whether they're a Jew or an Egyptian, if they have the blood on the door, I'll pass over. Their sins will not condemn them. But those who do not have the blood on the door, the firstborn of every family will die. So the Passover is a prophecy of Jesus, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that happens the week before Passover. It's talking about the sinless body of Jesus and, and that we are also to walk in a sinlessness. The Feast of First Fruits is about his resurrection 
Christ raised again. He's the, the first fruits of all those who would be resurrected. The day of Pentecost was the birth of the church. The Feast of Trumpets is the only one that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And that's the rapture of the church. There is one left uh, to be fulfilled. So in reality, I, I guess we should be having uh, the Feast of Trumpets still. And to remind everybody, you know, to basically say, hey, we're, we're celebrating the Feast of Trumpets and then have a message on the Lord's return. And then the Day of Atonement, it's again about how our sins have been forgiven through the afflictions of Christ. Now our afflictions are gone. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. This is Jesus coming into a human body. John 1 said and, um, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is actually the word tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. And then Sabbath is how we rest by faith alone with no works into the work of Christ. Well, verse 17 here, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the reality is of Christ. So the entire Old Testament page by page speaks of what the Messiah would do in all of these various shadows in the days and, and the different festivals and all of these things speak of Christ and they were fulfilled in Christ. Paul says it again in Hebrews 10.1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So imagine if you guys, if you had a soldier who is going on deployment for 10 months and the wife says, hey, your dad's gonna come back in 10 months and you know, here's a picture of him and they hug the picture and kiss the picture. And, and you know, back in the old days, we used to exit planes by staircases and you still do that in some countries. But imagine this soldier finally getting off the plane and coming down the stairs. And there's his family at the bottom of those stairs. And all the kids see his silhouette in the shadow. And they all start kissing the shadow and hugging the shadow. And then finally the dad comes right up to them. And he's like, hey guys, I'm here. They look up and they start kissing the shadow some more. Wouldn't that be absolutely ridiculous? This is what he's saying. The, the, Jesus has come. All the prophecies now of his first coming are insignificant. They've all been fulfilled. We have Christ himself. We don't need the shadow as they did in the Old Testament. And so just, just think about this. God came in human flesh. He suffered and died on a cross, rose again, paying for all of our sins. And when he rose from the dead, he's like, now, let's talk about the days. Let's talk about the, what you eat. And we're going, thank you for dying on the cross, paying for my sins. And now, I need to make myself holier by, by days and festivals and foods and what I don't eat. And what, I, do you see how that pales in comparison? It's, it's, it's really yucky because Christ paid for it all on the cross. That's why it was so tr tragic and so um, horrific 
of a death because he paid it all. What did Jesus say on the cross? The last thing? It is finished. The work's complete. It's been paid in full. Hebrews 10, let's read that in verse 5 through 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he, Jesus, said, Sacrifice and offerings you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sins, you had no pleasure. Read the last book of the Old Testament. God says this plainly. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it's written of me, every page of the entire Old Testament, to do your will, O God. Jesus praying to his Father, why in human flesh? Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are an offering according to the law. And he, Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Now listen to verse 10. 10, 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How? Once for all. If you read the last book of Malachi, the people are going, oh, to go to Jerusalem so hard, to walk uphill to the temple so hard, to give the first and the best of my sheep and of my oxen, and, and the, I have to give 10% of my money. Oh, I only get 90%. <laughs> and there's such a burden worshiping God. It's such a burden serving the Lord. And so they would take a blind sheep when it was supposed to be perfect. And the sheep and the priests themselves were like, who cares? We're going to burn it anyway. Throw it on there. And finally, the end of Malachi, God says, I don't want to burden you anymore. Please, no more sacrifices. Please, no more worship. I don't want your tithe. I'm sorry I was a burden to you but I no longer receive it. You can pray all you want. I don't hear it. You can sacrifice all you want. I don't receive it because your hearts are far from me. 400 years of silence. And that 400 years of silence was broken with the last and greatest prophet. Jesus said, out of all men who have ever lived on this earth to this point, None is greater than John the Baptist. But in the kingdom after John the Baptist, even the least of believers are greater than he. But John the Baptist broke the silence and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God said, you're unwilling to give me a tithe or an offering or a sacrifice. I'm going to break the silence by giving my only begotten son willingly, joyfully, out of love. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, the Lamb of God. I give it to you willingly. Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so God set the pattern, saying, from this point forward, the only religion I'll receive, if you've got to say it that way, is going to be out of you by faith receiving my love for you and everything you do out of relationship and love for me, nothing else. 
So all of what I said in the Old Testament was all just to, one, show people they couldn't keep even the simplest of laws, but two, to point to their need for a Messiah. But once the Messiah has come, it's no longer good. So we we see several of these things pointed out very specifically. Um, For example, the Passover. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. Therefore, he said, now let us keep the feast. When? Once a year? Always. Every day. By what? Just like they prepared a week before the Passover, they prepared by getting the leaven out of their house, representing sin. So now let us live, you know, celebrating the Passover every day, but let's live in that place of unleavened bread. So God has called us to live as we are participating in Passover, that we understand there can be no leaven in the house when Passover is celebrated. Also manna. They said, well, what works are you going to show us that you're really from God? Because our fathers, our fathers gave us manna in the wilderness. We haven't heard anything like that from you. And Jesus says, your fathers gave you squat. My father gave you that manna. It was never your fathers that gave you that manna. It was my father that gave you that manna. And that manna, they ate and died. But now the father is giving you a new manna. And whoever eats this manna shall never die. For the manna is my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. Of course, it freaked him out. But he said these words are spirit and life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And then the Sabbath. The the disciples in Mark 2 were collecting the grains as they were walking through the field, which was totally okay in the law. The law actually says if it's on a Sabbath, on one of the festivals that creates a Sabbath during that time of year, you can go and grab an apple off a tree and eat it. You can't grab a bundle of them in a basket. That would be work. So to walk to the grain field, they would get these wheat, and they would put them in their hands back and forth, which would knock the outer shell off, and then they would take it. It's like a gummy substance, very nutritious, which was totally illegal. But it was illegal according to the Pharisees' law. The Pharisees made 1,500 new laws on how to keep the Sabbath holy. It was insane. And then Jesus, though, lays into these Pharisees who were condemning his apostles. And he said, look, they said, why, why are you guys breaking the Sabbath law? And in Mark 2, verse 27, 28, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, okay, let's go back to creation. And on the seventh day, God made what? A day of rest. That was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. Okay, I created that. You're telling me how, what I meant when I created that, how that's to be? He goes, I'm going to tell you right now. I made that for man. That man could rest, that man could enjoy, that man could trust me to take care of their needs on that day. And you've turned it around, where now it's all about 
man, it's for the Sabbath. And it's this burden, all 1,500 things that I never said, that you're putting a burden on people. I didn't do that. And by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I could take away the Sabbath tomorrow if I want. I started, I could stop it. I'm God. Now, in Ephesians 4, or Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, the whole thing is on this point. And this is, this is the point that Paul's making. That they were given in creation the Sabbath day. They were given in the law the Sabbath day. But the children of Israel never experienced one Sabbath, according to Apostle Paul. You know why? Because they could never enter into the rest. You know, it's interesting The children of Israel, every seventh year, were to take the whole year off. Didn't God mean that God of the Old Testament? One tough dude. In the 490 years they were in the promised land, do you know how many times they did that every seventh year? Because it would be a step of faith. Not once. So if you do seven into 490, that's 70. And so God prophesies through Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and says to them, they, it, had they willingly walked by faith in that Sabbath and given me that year, I would have blessed them so much. But now I'm just going to take it. I'm going to have the Babylonians come up and we're going to kick everybody out of the promised land. And my land will have its seventh year rest 70 years in a row. I will have that. So again, they couldn't do that. And then he explains it was because of disobedience or unbelief. They never could, by faith, rest in the promises of God or in the commands of God. So Joshua, he says in verse 8 of of Hebrews 4, he says, so Joshua, though, prophesied of a day of rest that was yet to come. And he says in verse 9, there remains therefore a rest of the people of God. That's us. What is that rest? He's going to explain it to us. For he who has re-entered into his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. That's the definition of a Sabbath. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the Sabbath, lest anyone fall short according to the same example of disobedience. So let's strive to keep the Sabbath. (laughs) It's an oxymoron. But what is the Sabbath? Let's go back to the beginning. When was man created? At the end of the sixth day. When was man's very first day of life to be? The seventh day, entering in to the rest. Now, why did God create the seventh day of rest? Because he was done. (laughs) There was nothing more to do. There was no more creation to be done. He had finished all of the creating he was going to do. All the work was done by God. And their first day of life, they're to wake up and just enjoy. What? The finished work of God. How are we saved? Exactly the same way by having faith in the finished work of Christ. So we believe in the Lord, and the next day we wake up trusting in him. 
Where my sin abounds, his grace abounds more. When I'm faithless, he remains faithful. As a father pities his child, so the Lord pities us and crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. His mercies are new every morning. What God required of you, O man, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we enter in. That is keeping the Sabbath. So you know what? We have a law to re, we, that requires you that make every single day the Sabbath until you die. But what is the Sabbath? It's just by faith alone, trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Well, we come to the end. Do I hear a big, oh, Brian, come on, another hour. You can do it. You can do it. Oh, yeah, I can do it. Boy, you're not getting on. There's five negative effects of legalism. First of all, you become that person. They become a very judgmental, critical, fault-finding spirit. They criticize themselves into condemnation, and they want everybody to be as miserable as they are so they condemn everybody else around them. I'm not being spiritual enough, and neither are you. And let me point out all the areas of, well, let me point out your areas. No, 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 don't point out my areas. The way this works is I don't point out my areas, but I point out your areas. This is for you, not for me. Um, (laughs) You know, I grew up in a denominational church, the holiness movement. And to become a member of that church, you had to sign a document of all, you had to read this handbook, and all the things. You couldn't dance. You couldn't go to movies. You couldn't go to circuses. And a list of other things. Because those things will keep you from being holy. I love what J. Vernon McGee said about, can Christians dance? He said, some can and some can't. <laughs> when I was uh, in high school... Because I, even though we were members of that church, my parents disobeyed it. We'd go to the Disney movies, you know. And uh, I remember in, in my early high school years going to some movie. I don't remember what it was. And I walked by, and there were some of the board members of the church, the leaders of the church. And I walked by, and they're like, Shh. they got me on Sunday. Don't tell anybody. And they were serious. And I thought, Oh, my goodness. There's something wrong with this system. And then I remember when I was in my early high school years, we had a big worldwide convention, and, and the guy said, we can go to circuses now. And I remember as a kid going, yay! I hate circuses. <laughs> I went a couple times as a kid. I, it was freaked me out. I, I, now, there's other groups. It's about your clothes. Women can always have to wear dresses or... Or they always have to have a veil on. I, there was a Calvary Chapel in San Diego that became very Calvinistic. And then they ended up interpreting a scripture that girls had to wear veils to church. And, and so at first, the women started wearing these big, giant veils and covering their hair up. They sort of liked it because they didn't have to fix their hair on Sunday morning. But the pastor's wife eventually is just like, this is ridiculous. And so the women started wearing smaller and smaller ones until it ended up being like a Jewish uh, Hanukkah, right? But the pastor's wife one Sunday said, 
how much of my hair? All my hair? And like, you can't see any of my hair? Can you see some of my hair? It's like, yeah, you can see, see some of your hair. You seem to have your head covered. So she got a, a cloth um, coaster for you put on your, your drink on, and she pinned it on her head and went to church. Well, after the church service, the elders got the pastor together and said, you're fired because you are not keeping your household in order. And that was the end of, of that weirdness. But yet there's groups that do this kind of stuff. They, they say, can women wear makeup? Again, I like J. Vernon McGee. If the barn needs painting, paint it. All of this, secondly, not only does it create judgmentalness and ridiculousness, it promotes uniformity. You see, it's all about the outside. You see, Christianity says this. When Jesus comes into your heart and you understand his love for you, what? first of all, first understand and grow and be pickled in the, the love of God for you, his faithfulness towards you, his promises that will never end for you, the gifts he's given to you will never be revoked. Then we began from the inside out loving him. So yes, when people come to Christ, I was just hearing a testimony a while back about a guy who was living in the homosexual community in LA and, and um, he, he ended up getting radically saved. But when he left church every Sunday for months, he went homosexual community but after a couple of weeks he just didn't feel comfortable sleeping with his partner in the same room they separated then the parties they had every single night of the week he he just found himself wanting to leave them and go home and read his bible and then one day he just realized man i i hate living here <laughs> but see there's some guys going okay you're homosexual you got to leave here right now and go live in a hotel until you find a new place to live. If you go back to there, then you're not really saved. They immediately say, oh, you believe and plus we're putting this works on you. We're putting this standard on you. But what happened? Nobody told this guy anything. He ended up going to a church with a bunch of old people. It wasn't this one. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and people hardly talked to him, and, and he, he just slowly learned. But the beauty of his testimony is everything he did and didn't do was because he just wanted to please God more. See, that's, that's, the, that's the way it should be. But uniformity, Jesus talked about this. He said, you Pharisees, I'll tell you who you're like. You scrub on the outside of the cup. And on the inside of the cup is just full of bacteria and, and feces and dirt. That's you guys. On the outside, you look so clean. But if anybody uses that, ugh. Or you guys are like a, a tomb. You know, in Israel, you could never step on a tomb. So they would keep whitewashing them. So as they got old and dirty, they would, you'd be able to see them, not to walk over them. That's you guys. You guys are the whitewashed tombs. But let me tell you. It's still a tomb full of dead men's bones. And so is all your religion dead. And so true Christianity, it's about within. 
and why you're doing, the motivation of what you're doing and why you're doing it has to be out of love. I, I, just a little side note here. Satan hates that we're made in God's image. And you know, one of the things that God has done is everybody is equally unique. Right down, we know, to our DNA now, right? Fingerprints and, and uh, our hair. Your hair is not like anybody else's hair on the planet Earth, nor has ever been anybody before you with exactly your thickness, your style, the angles. God loves uniqueness. But when you, you promote legalism, and it's from the devil, what happens? You get the Jehovah Witnesses. They all get the same haircut. They all look the same. They all have a briefcase. They, they all start looking like, like clones. Look at the Mormons. Same thing. They all get the same haircut. They all start looking alike. You look, go to any religion, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism, or uh, everybody has got to take away. We don't, we don't want your uniqueness here. We need everybody to outwardly do the same thing, look the same way, talk the same way, follow the party line. And it's destroying the beauty of uniqueness. That's his plan in that. So one way you know if you're heading towards legalism is if you start changing into this image of the religion around you. Well, thirdly, it leads to hypocrisy. This is a fact. Everybody knows how to live better than we actually live. Right? I mean, Plato had that. He said, if we can imagine a straight line, somewhere there is a straight line. I believe it's heaven. There's a perfect circle. You know, to this day, even with all our electronics and techno you know we still can't draw a perfect circle. Can't be done. I mean, it looks like it to us, but it's not. But yet we know. How do we know that's not a perfect circle? Hmm. Well, again, because we're made by God and we're spiritual beings far more than just physical. In the same way, we all know how to be more loving than we are. We all know how to be more pure than we are, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're in this groups, I got to look at, or these guys will eat me alive. <laughs> you know, I'm the... The adult Sunday school teacher, if they realize that they're thinking I'm spiritual to this degree, if they find out that I'm really spiritual to this degree, they'll kick me out. Do you know how embarrassing that would be? So I got to at least look it. I can tell you so many pastor's kids that wanted nothing to do with God when they finally left the home. And the main reason was, is they're the Saturday night before church or on their way to church, dad's telling them, don't tell anybody I said that. Don't tell anybody mom kicked the dog. Don't tell them we watched that movie. We shouldn't have. Don't, you know. And the kids are going, oh my God, if I say the wrong thing, dad's going to get fired. And we're going to have to move. And we won't have our house anymore. And, and the kids carry this burden. It's ridiculous. I am not as spiritual as you think. <laughs> and you are not as spiritual as I would like to think you are. That, that's just the fact of reality. But nobody here has the pressure of, of saying, I at least need to appear that way. You understand? You, can ha you can't have relationship at all if that is the case. 
How much more with God? With God, he, the whole point of it is we have a, an honest, open relationship with him. But yet we want to lie to God that we're better than we are. Thirdly, so again, it, number one, it brings about judgmentalness and criticalness, false finding. Secondly, it promotes uniformity. Three, it leads to hypocrisy. Four, it leads to arrogance. I am better than you because I don't have that long hair. I remember hearing that back in the Jesus movement, you know. But we were sort of rebellious, so we'd tell Grandma, Grandma, have you read Numbers? We took the vow of the Nazarite. We can never cut our hair. Um, but yet, I was told in the denomination again, man, if you're really wanting to be holy, you need to get that haircut. Plain and simple. You know, the, the dad told his son, the son said, Dad, can you help me get a car? And he said, sure. I want you to get much better grades and cut your hair, and I will help you buy a car. So at the end of the semester, he says, Dad, here's my report card. Look at how great my grades are. And he said, great. He goes, can you help me buy a car? And he goes, no, Dad, this is the style. I like my long hair. Jesus had long hair. And his dad said, yep, and Jesus walked everywhere he went. But again, it's that spirit. Remember the, Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector that both went in to pray? And the tax collector beats his chest going, God, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner. And the Pharisee goes, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that guy. Thank you that I, and he gives this list of all the religious things he does right. And Jesus said, who left and was righteous before God? He said, I tell you, as a tax collector. <coughs> Lastly, it takes away the life of joy. If you're miserable, that's because you're being righteous. The story about a pastor who got snowed in on a Sunday morning and his car wouldn't stop, start. And so he decides to put on his ice skates and ice skated to church. And the elders found out about it and they were going to fire him. They said, you're breaking the Sabbath by ice skating. And they all had a conversation about it, and they finally figured out, and they asked the pastor one question. Did you enjoy it? And the pastor thought a minute, and he goes, no, I didn't enjoy it. Okay, then it wasn't a sin. <laughs> That's the thing. But again, it's focus, the whole thing of legalism is focusing on yourself. And you look at yourself, you're going to be depressed. Looking at your sinful, weak, selfish nature that struggles even to do the simplest of righteous things. True Christianity keeps our eyes on Jesus and his righteousness that he's given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made himself a new no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Why am I righteous? Why am I going to heaven? Because Jesus through the cross made me righteous. In 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Take a note. Well, if you're holy, you're walking in the light as he is in the light. Well, notice here that even as I'm walking in the light as he is in the light, I'm still sinning because I still need the blood of Christ to keep cleansing me from all sin. So what does walking in the light mean? 
He tells us the very next thing. If you say you have no sin, you lie and make God a liar. What is walking in the light? It's walking in faith alone and it's walking honestly, openly. That's what all the religions of the world can never give you. Right? Because we're all human, we all sin, but if you have the Holy Spirit within, as you grow in the Lord, that desire to love the Lord, to please the Lord, to live a holy life, has nothing to do with my righteousness or going to heaven or God liking me more. It's just simply, I love being fruitful. It pleases Jesus. And I want to be more fruitful yet. And from that relationship with Christ and that heart of love, sanctification does happen. Amen and amen. Well, Lord, thank you for your word today. Put it deep into our hearts. Cause us, Lord, to desire you more than we've ever desired you before. Help us to love you more than we've ever loved you before. And please, Lord, strip away, rip away all of legalism that has been put into our minds from kids or placed in our mind by others, that in you we are free. There is no law. But that we wouldn't use our liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love we would serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.